In this episode, pensions consultant and all-round expert, John Ralph, talks me through the most contentious pensions issue of the past couple of years, involving the UK's biggest funded pension scheme and the industrial action affecting the education of millions of students. with huge interest, not least because I have children at university. I've been watching with great interest how this has played out over recent years. And so, I mean, it's it's clearly an int- deeply entrenched and intractable problem between the, the sponsoring employers of the university superannuation scheme and the members. And everyone has struggled to arrive at a place that everybody is happy with. And caught in the middle is the superannuation scheme itself. So, just to kick off, I'd be just really interested in your kind of high-level view of how you see the problem or what you think the key issues are. Yeah, thanks. Let me just say a few a few opening comments. So the few my few opening comments, Tom, really have nothing to do with USS. USS is a defined benefit pension scheme. It's got a few knobs and twiddles, and in particular, it's a multi-employer scheme. But it's basically like any other company providing DB pension promises, and those DB pension promises are very onerous. You can't turn around in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, 40 years' time and say, sorry, we got it wrong. You are on the hook to pay. You're on the hook to pay depending on the number of years that the member's been in the scheme and the salary. You're on the hook to pay from the point at which they retire till they die and then the survivor's pension. Hmm. The cost of DB pensions, as we know, has gone up over the last you know, 20 years, 10 years, five years. And that's a function of two things. It's primarily a function of real interest rates falling. So the amount that you have to put away today to meet a fixed commitment in the future has gone up. And then secondly, because people are living longer. Is it fair to throw in a third factor of a degree of well-meaning legislation, you know, vesting rights, that kind of thing? No, no, Because because the promises employers signed up to, the goalposts have been moved a bit over the years. That's a complete red herring, Tom. I don't think it's for this this conversation. I'm happy to have another conversation with you. Okay, fair Um, enough. People, employers did sign up voluntarily. They might not have realised what they were signing up for, but it's not that the goalposts were moved after the event. So the the underlying cost of providing defined benefit pensions promises has gone up spectacularly in the last 20 years. And, you know, I've been involved in in pensions for the last 20 odd years. And what have companies done? Well, over the last 20 years, first of all, they're close to new members. Secondly, they've increased member contributions and they moved from, say, final salary to career average to make it a bit cheaper. And then finally... Over the course of the last, I'm saying, three or four years, defined benefit pension schemes in the private sector have closed entirely. And I have this conversation with various people, Tom, that I can't think of more than two companies in the FTSE 350 that that still have defined benefit pension promises. Well, on that point, from memory, the number of individuals still accruing Defined benefit pension promises in the private sector is now below a million people. So I think it dropped below a million people not that long ago. Yeah, but, but I was looking at the membership of the USS scheme. You've got 200,000 active members there. So the USS scheme actually makes up a well, really big chunk of that private sector provision. It, it, it does. And there are various other railway pension scheme, for example, which is quasi-public, particularly since they were effectively nationalised not very long ago. And those figures are always always a bit bit dated. 
To me, a Rubicon was crossed when British Telecom closed to existing members because, uh, you know, it's the largest pension scheme in, in the country, very heavily unionised, and it's very much of a bellwether. So has BA. John Lewis closed three years ago. You know, it's actually very, very, very difficult to come up with more than a handful of companies that are still still have open open DB schemes. So, so, so the macro background is pension schemes are a lot more expensive than they were. What have what have companies done in response to that? They've closed. They've moved to DC. So, if we then sort of park that general point and say, okay, what is different about universities? What is it that means that universities can do something? in other words, provide a pension that everybody else in the private sector, and I say everybody else in the private sector, and I know, you know, the universities are, are not, not private sector in, in, in the way that most people would understand it. No, because they, they, never... they, they would argue that they are competing with other education establishments that are effectively in the public sector in a lot of cases, right? Well, that, that, that may or may not be the case. I think that makes it even more difficult because, first of all, they don't have shareholders. They don't have dividends. They're not set up to make a profit. Mm. They're not set up to take, the, we'll come on to this, in a, I'm sure, later, Tom. They're not set up to take the sort of huge and absolutely huge bets yeah. which USS is taking and has taken since it was set up in, in the mid-1970s. Yeah, that's just not what they're about. They are institutions of research. They're institutions for, for teaching. So one of the peculiarities of the universities is they're very human capital intensive, right? So a large part of their operating costs is their people. And as a consequence, therefore, salaries and pension provision are a really big chunk of their ongoing operating costs. And I guess, therefore, that escalation in pension funding costs that you talked about, and just looking at the numbers and the way they have grown over the years, and why all the other private sector employers have walked away from this, is the, the, the cost of now providing that guaranteed benefit for, for those scheme members has, has effectively become unsustainable for them, right? That's, that, that's absolutely right. That is absolutely right. It's, you know, it's no more complicated than that, Tom. But, but from the members' point of view, and I think it's really interesting when you see the kind of comments Joe Grady has made, uh, and, you know, I understand she's leading the union, she's speaking on behalf of members, you know, unions do what unions do, but she and they talk about their members' right to a decent pension, the fact that they're, they're, you know, they, they use emotive language like it's being stolen. And again, this is, this is pretty typical of these kind of negotiations. This is where you end up. But I get a real sense that the membership comes at this, and I, use, I referenced just now that point about other education establishments and you know, teachers in secondary schools and primary schools are given public sector pensions. That anchors their thinking, I think, to a large extent. You know, that's the yardstick against which they are measuring the terms being offered to them. And they argue that, look, you know, we should get something similar. And it feels like there's a bit of a disconnect there yeah. where, where the universities themselves are saying, well, that's all very well, but we are, yeah. we are commercial businesses. Yeah, except, except there's a very easy answer to that. And by the way, over the last 20, almost 20 years, I've, I've advised... Lots of companies, mainly companies, I've advised some boards of trustees. I've even advised, you know, back in the day, I've even advised a trade union on negotiating the, the, the least worst deal when a, the, the company was closing the scheme. If you feel that, you know, whatever, whatever your skill is, whatever your job is, whatever you're, you're, you're doing, if you think you are underpaid, then the way to, be, the way to do it 
is to have a negotiation about an increase in salary. It's to say, okay, this is the pension, and whatever the pension is, particularly if the pension is being reduced in generosity, that isn't that isn't enough. In terms of supply and demand, or what I can get if I moved to an American university, or whatever, get if I moved to you know a, a polytechnic with, as you're suggesting, a teacher's pension scheme. That's absolutely fine. Have that proper debate, and that's a proper debate which takes into account you know whatever union muscle there is, don't do it in the pension scheme. Don't create a smokescreen in the pension scheme to say, well, actually, I should get a pension of whatever it is. And I was going to say defined benefit pensions are are, are difficult. They're not difficult. They're really not difficult. They have been made difficult by a whole number of different people for a whole number of different reasons. And for USS, you know, we've got the unholy three We've got UCU, we've got UUK, we've got USS itself, each of which have a reason to create a smokescreen. And over the last, you know, I've followed USS for 16 or 17 years. And over that time, all three of that parts of the unholy trinity have created a smokescreen. Just sorry, just unpack that. So, so Universities UK is the group of employers, right? Uh, UUK are the people who write the checks. Right. They are the employer in the balance of cost. And the UCU, they're the unions, right? Absolutely. And then the USS is the pension scheme itself, the superannuation scheme. Yes. So you talked about smoke screens and the unholy trinity. Just kind of just unpack that a bit. What did you mean by that? Well, it, it's pretty obvious that w- w- what UCU's interests are, and, I, and, you know, they are a union, as you said, and that's fine. They fight for their members' interests. UUK wants a quiet life. I happen to be sitting in Nottingham, the Vice-Chancellor of Nottingham, whom I don't know, doesn't want a proportion of the staff to be, to be on strike. She well, wants it's not a, good for business, right? She, exactly. She, want, she wants a quiet life. Now, if a quiet life means going along with what the union wants, oh, and by the way, you know, that's a can that can be kicked down the road, that's quite attractive for a lot of the employers. And it's worth saying, and I'll, and I'll, say, it, I'll say it now, it's worth saying that the corporate governance of... USS because it's a multi-employer scheme where even the largest constituent, which I think is is probably Manchester University, which has about 5%, even the largest constituent is very small and it's difficult to get all those institutions. There are 80 or so so-called old, old, old universities. There are the same number of new universities, the former polytechnics, and then there are I think it's hundreds, it's not yeah, dozens. Yeah, like 350 hundreds. employers, something like yeah, that in total. H- hundreds of, exactly, hundreds of employers. Very difficult to get them pulling in the, pulling in the same direction, whatever that direction is. So it, it's very dysfunctional. USS doesn't want to have to stick its hand up and say, well, the truth is that for the last, you know, 40-odd years since we started, we've been betting on equities, That worked pretty well until the early 2000s, and it's been disastrous since. They were very heavily invested in equities, and really an outlier relative to most DB schemes at that point, weren't they? And I know know there's been a general trend away from equities over the last 20 years, but even back then, they, they were a bit of an outlier, right? That's absolutely right. That is absolutely right. And they have gone from, and I'm trying to remember what the figures are. I can't quite remember what the figures are. The figures are something like they had... An IS-19, as as you know, that's the accounting measure, which uses a double-A corporate bond. They had quite a decent surplus, a couple of billion quid surplus, 
in 2007, and they've now got a deficit 2021 of about 15 billion. So they have managed, they USS, have managed to lose several billion quid by betting on equities and getting it wrong. And, and arguably, sorry to interrupt, they, they could have done what you did at Boots way back when and say, well, look, if we're in surplus now, let's just, let's just take all the risk off the table. They could have done that, right? Yes, they could have done. And I don't want to you know, blow my own trumpet, but the great John Plender at the Financial Times, who's still writing, I'm very glad to see he is still writing, did a piece in 2006. I'd spent a lot of time working on USS and getting the ducks in a row. He spent a lot of time with me. So the idea that USS was not very publicly warned by a long piece in the Financial Times um, as long ago as 2000 and, as 2006 is just, you know, so, it's just So why did they continue to bet on equities? Why didn't they take some of that risk off the table? The answer is I don't know. Genuinely, the answer is I don't know. My, and I'm going to be slightly careful what I say here because I don't want to slag anybody off publicly. The fund actuary for USS at the time, and he replied to John Plender's uh, article, he was at Mercer, what it is the most dinosaur-like actuary that I have ever met in you know, 20 years of meeting actuaries. And he was very, 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 very influential. I'm not saying that's the cause of it, but that's certainly, certainly was not helpful. Okay, so and I'm going to dig into that a little bit. When you say dinosaur-like, how is that reflected? I mean, what, what, did, what did you mean by that? Because most of us aren't actuaries, John. So, so what does a dinosaur actuary Oh, it, it, was, like? it was basically bet on equities, keep your fingers crossed, and everything will be all right in the long run. Right, right, okay. So they kept doing that, and periodically things kind of did go well, but then progressively over the last 20 years mostly they haven't gone well. And, and sitting in the background for all of this, you've got the pensions regulator who gets a little anxious about scheme deficits and deficit reduction contributions. And, I mean, ultimately one of their jobs is to make sure schemes don't end up in the pension protection funds. So, And, and the likelihood of this going bust is perhaps a bit extreme because of the peculiar nature of university businesses and the you know the long-term nature of them. They're not like ordinary businesses. But still, the pensions regulators kind of look at this going, well, I'm not entirely happy about that deficit. So, so that's a factor in all of this as well, right? It is, although, again, I'm guessing, I don't think the pension regulator is going into USS and laying down the law. I, 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 just, don't, I just don't think it is. And it picks up your point about, you know, regulations, I don't think you UK are saying to themselves, gosh, if it wasn't for that horrid pension regulator, we'd think everything in the garden was lovely. Because before you get to the stage of USS being a million miles away from, you know, being bankrupt, what have you got? You have got to have had, I mean, an absolutely catastrophic disruption to higher education, you have had to have had 10 or 20 of the 100 universities, however many universities it is, going bust. Would that affect USS director? Well, no, it wouldn't. But as far as the university sector is concerned, before USS is under the cosh, my God, the university sector as a whole will be under the cosh. So again, I'm guessing, but I don't think the regulator is doing anything than being in the background 
and you know there are public letters that the regulator has or well, letters that have been made public that the regulator has sent it's all been fairly light touch oh okay so i mean just fast forwarding a bit now we've got to a point where assuming there's been an agreement and you're going through the various valuation cycles and the things are becoming increasingly tense we ended up with a, a, a sort of arbitration body getting put in the middle to, to, to help with the negotiations between the, the member representatives and the employer representatives, this joint panel that I think was chaired by Joanna Seat, Jan Seegers yeah. at one point. But, right? but, but I mean, that was all, all that did was kick the can down the road and they ignored all the representations from people. And, you know, there are various other people, you know, people that I know, they just ignored what they didn't want to hear. So all that did was kick the can. I mean, it was a, it was... It was a waste of time and effort and energy and led people to think that, you know, it was a matter of looking very carefully at the end of a, you know, sharpening your pencil and you could come up with a, come up with an answer. It, it is worth saying, by the way, that the original proposal following the 2017 valuation was to close the DB scheme right, altogether. Move to D- and, and move everybody, let's move to DC. everybody to DC. And people seem to have forgotten that in the toing and froing that's that's gone on since. In 2014, there was a move in that direction, and I was, you know, very pleased. And that that didn't go through without incident, put it put it that way. But it went through, and that capped the it capped the DB contribution. Originally, it was going to be thirty thousand. It was negotiated upwards to sixty thousand. And let's be clear that at the same time, the DB pension became slightly more generous. Previously, it was an 80th pension, 380th cash. It then became 175th pension and 375th. So actually, some people did rather better out of it, thank you. And by the way, before anybody jumps down my throat, it did move from final salary to career average. Career average. Career as well. So nobody should be terribly surprised that, you know, this is the direction of travel. And when we talk about the 2020 valuation, we're not very far away from the 2023 valuation. You know, <laughs> so like, again. But look, well, before, but before we go on to that, and I just just want to pause for a second. Something you highlighted to me recently that I hadn't been aware of, which is alongside the USS, many of these institutions, many of these educational establishments, had run their own single employer DB arrangement for their general staff. And that mostly they've closed those down. That's right. Well, that's that's probably putting it a bit too strongly. Most of the old universities have their own schemes that are run exactly like, you know, schemes are run by individual companies. Mm. London has a multi-employer, so all the London universities and a few others are in something called SAUL, S-A-U-L. The new universities, and this is the, you know, for historic reasons, the former polytechnics tend to be in the local government pension scheme. So Nottingham University has its own pension scheme for other ranks. The other ranks at Nottingham Trent are in the Nottinghamshire County Council pension scheme. Right. If you look at the ones where the decisions can be taken, you know, in a, in a proper way between the employer and the, the employees over the last 10 years, probably slightly slower than the real private-private sector, but all of them have moved in that direction. And it might be that they've stopped at closing to existing members, but they, a lot have closed to new members. A lot have moved from you know, final salary to career average, increased member contributions, and some have closed altogether. And this sort of illustrates this point about 
you know, corporate governance, and it's dysfunctional when you have joint ventures and you have so many people all pulling in slightly different directions. When you have a situation where basically there's one employer and there's one group of employees, and these are the people working at university below a certain you know, level, below a certain grade, who incidentally you know, typically have shorter life expectancy. One of the slightly odd things about USS is that the life expectancy is high because, believe it or not, the life expectancy of you know, somebody on a, a lecturer's salary is also quite high. So I think the, the conclusion I take from that, Tom, is that where individual universities have been able to take their own individual decisions, however far they've got, they're all moving to a greater or lesser extent in the direction of saying, oh my God, these things are just too expensive and they're too toxic. They are out of our control. Yeah. What do we do about it? We have to do something about it. Take remedial action, yeah, and and you know, no surprise there. So uh, because because they're saying you know what every other private sector employer has already already concluded. So as we move forward towards the present, as far as I can see, we've arrived at a point where you know there's a degree of argument about the precise number, but in terms of the ongoing benefit accrual. We've landed in the kind of low mid 30%. So this is what it costs to pay for ongoing benefit accrual. And there's still a degree of argument about exactly where that number should land. But but there's a, cons- a degree of consensus around that. And it seems they're almost able to reach agreements around, yep, so whether it's 32 or 34% of one, I can't remember the exact number. But that's the kind of territory we're in to pay for ongoing benefit accrual here. And then there's questions around the employer covenant that I want to come back to in a moment. The bit that I found perplexing through all of this, as a as a, as a non-actuary, John, so help me out here, is the continual arguments that I've seen in the media and on social media about valuation bases and the size of the deficit. And I thought there were certain immutable valuations that could be done, whether it's FRS 17 or PPF or whatever. There are certain methodologies that could be applied that, you know, it is what it is. Yet every time I look at this, there's there's an argument about just how big the deficit is, and that then relates to the deficit reduction contributions, which I appreciate is different to the ongoing accrual contributions. But just just talk to me a bit about that valuation thing and why they can't reach agreement on that. I mean, you're absolutely right that FRS 17 or IS 19, and they and they both amount to the same. And more than 20 years ago now, I was one of a I don't know half a dozen people who were advising the Accounting Standards Board on what became FRS 17. So, you know, I've got some some skin in the game. All companies have to produce those numbers. The companies that don't have to produce their numbers are multi-employer schemes. And some of those multi-employer schemes do produce the numbers, nevertheless, and USS is one of them. I'll come back to that in a moment. And I I wish I could say I remember the conversation that we had in sort of 1998 but I suspect at the time we were so shell-shocked from trying to get people to understand um, what was going on for a single employer schemes that we just gave up on multi-employer schemes. So, you know, I take, I take some responsibility for that. But USS, and, and, and I've said this umpteen times and, you know, people don't believe me, USS produces it, its FRS 17. Well, actually now, just to make life complicated, it's FRS 102, it produces its FRS 102 numbers, and it's done that every year for a, for a long time. So 
it isn't a question of me sitting down and trying to make an estimate. These numbers are there, you know, they're on page 29 of the 2021 annual report, if anybody's interested in looking. And that shows you what the assets are. No debate about that. And it shows you what the liabilities are. Those liabilities are discounted at a double A corporate bond yield. The assets from the liabilities and what do you end up with? You end up with a deficit. And I mean, to quote the numbers, 80.6 billion of assets, huge in absolute terms, the largest scheme in the country. Liabilities on a, an FRS 102 basis, 95.5 billion liabilities. So a whisker under 15 billion, 14.9 billion of liabilities, which incidentally is higher than the equivalent 2020 number, which was 13.2. And although assets went up significantly for everybody from 2020 to 2021, that's only looking at one side of the equation. At the same time as assets went up, liabilities went up. Well, why did liabilities go up? Because in March 2020, there was a lot of uncertainty about corporate credit and corporate credit spreads were quite wide, very wide. And by the time we got to March 2021, those yields had come down. So one of the things, it isn't necessarily um, answering your question directly, one of the things that people are reluctant to acknowledge is to say, okay, we've got assets on one side of the balance sheet, we have liabilities on the other side of the balance sheet. It's a bit like those people who say, fantastic, my house is now worth, you know, a million squillion quid. That's the good news. But the bad news is I took a mortgage on in the first place, which was a fixed rate mortgage. And how much do I owe on that mortgage? Well, I owe more than I did in the first place, and I'm in negative equity. So you've got to look at both sides of the balance sheet. You're only interested, really, when you're running a pension scheme in, you know, what is the difference between the two? What's the difference between assets and liabilities? And that's very sensitive to quite small movements on, you know, on both sides of the balance sheet. So although the value of assets has, got, has gone up, you know, very significantly over that 12 months, and since, trouble is the value of liabilities has also gone up. So I don't want to suggest that the people who don't want to see this don't want to see it because they don't want to see it, and it doesn't, it doesn't suit their book to, to see it. I think the, the reason why people can't see this it's nothing to do with, you know, underlying economics. It's nothing to do with pensions. It's just the conclusions, the consequences of, you know, seeing the world as it is are not very pal- palatable. Well, it's, well, it's what does that mean? It's, it's very, very hard to get a man to believe something if his salary relies on him not yeah. believing it. Yeah. And, you can, and you can add to that, Tom, pension, can't yes. you? <laughs> so, so from a behavioural point of view, all that's quite straightforward. People don't want to see what they don't want to see. And then they start... The other argument that I think is interesting, this I just wanted you to touch on this briefly, is, yes, but it's cash flow positive, so everything's fine. Yeah, I seem to remember, and it's going back 10 years, more than 10 years, since the, the last big Ponzi scandal we had with Bernard Madoff. Bernard Madoff was cash positive. As long as he was getting more people to sign up and that the amount that was coming in was more than the amount that was going out through redemptions. Absolutely fantastic. Every Ponzi scheme has been cash positive till it's not been cash positive, and then the whole thing has collapsed. And of course, with a pension scheme, whether it's USS or anyone else, being cash positive, you know, if you, if you actually just stop and think about it, is a bit silly, because the cash that's coming in is for new pension promises. 
the cash that's coming in isn't just coming in, you know, in some magical way. So DB employers, universities, in the case of USS, are making new pension promises. They're on the hook to pay those new pensions, and they're putting money in to pay those new pensions. So you are double counting if you say, well, look, the money that's going in today for new pension promises is available to pay old pension promises, because it isn't. So you should be (laughs) paying the old pension promises out of investment income, effectively. You should be paying it out of the assets that you've already got. And if you can't pay it from the assets you've already got, and in the case of USS, you can't, you've got a 15 15 billion, 14.9 billion deficit, you've got a problem. So you need a deficit reduction contribution. Well, exactly. And... You know, it, it's, a, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like saying, isn't it? It's a bit like saying, OK, well, look, I am the man, and it's always a man, isn't it? I am the man down at the casino at three o'clock on a, on a Saturday, Saturday evening, and I've lost £14.9 billion. But don't worry, I've still got £81 billion, you know, on the tables. I've got this fantastic system which means that if I keep betting and I keep betting and I keep betting, I will win that 14.9 billion back. I think there's a way to run your life, and it's certainly not a way to run, your uni- run a university. And if, if it is a way to run a university, that's absolutely fantastic. If, you, if there is something in taking bets in the financial markets, borrowing to invest in equities, you know, if that's a good thing, that's fantastic. Each individual university should go out and do exactly the same thing. So again, Nottingham University shouldn't be too worried about the cost of a new building or the cost of hiring staff or the cost of any other cost. All they have to do is issue a long-term bond, take the cash from the long-term bond and buy a, you know, a FTSE All Share tracker. It's worth saying, by the way, that universities can, as a matter of fact, borrow and do, as a matter of fact, borrow, not very much over gilts. And some of those, you know, just on a fixed rate basis, one or two, Cambridge in particular, has done it on a CPI inflation-linked basis. So the opportunity cost for a university, we've got two choices. Do we make a promise to pay pensions or do we make a promise to pay bondholders well, we know how much the bondholders are going to give us as a cash lump sum to begin with if we offer to give them 2% or 2.5% or whatever it is for the next 30 years. Hmm. That's the opportunity cost. That's the decision that the university uh, is taking. And that's how you measure, OK, well, what is the cost of the pension that you are providing? It's, it's the opportunity cost. What is the opportunity cost? It's, it's issuing a bond. OK. Thank you for that. So the other thing that I find kind of intriguing about where we've got to with the negotiations on, on all of this is is there is a drift towards a DC pension. So originally it was DB accrual, uh, as you say, moved to career average, but up to 60K of salary. And I think that's now moving down to a 40K salary. Any salary above that level is going to be on DC accrual. So there is this shift in that direction. Given that the and I can't remember the numbers, 32 34%, that's, that's deemed to be the funding cost of providing that defined benefit pension. So no one's pretending that the that, that DB accrual is, is cheap. It is upwards of 30% to, to, to buy that level of benefits. 
something that I think I've seen a recurring characteristic of the closure of defined benefit pension schemes over the last 20 years has been just this mindset of, well, we will just defend in our trenches to the death the continued provision of defined benefits. But once we move to DC, we kind of roll over. And to my eyes, a battle to be fought is to say, well, if we're going to move to DC, let's let's fight for some really generous employer contributions into a DC pension. And, you know, I look at the, the auto-enrollment minima with a you know, 3% employer contribution, and that's certainly nothing to get excited about. You know, my sense is that the, the battle for the unions to fight as we move forward from here is to keep ratcheting up the DC contributions and say, well, if we're going to live in a DC world, let's make it a really generous one. And I'd be interested in your thoughts around that. I think that's right. And I mentioned earlier that I had advised, you know, a trade union, and that's exactly what I said. I said, all right, you can, you can huff and you can puff. And you can say, we don't, we won't going to defend the DB to the death, but you know, and I know it's going to happen. It is going to be closed. You know, how do you minimise the impact? Well, whatever the company's offering as a, as a minimum, you try and crank that up. And, you know, in that case, they did, they did crank it up. So, 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 yes, pragmatically, that is a battle which you might be able to win. In the case of USS... Closing the DB scheme, and let's be clear, we're not talking about closing the DB, DB scheme yet, but closing the D, DB scheme is going to happen. It started in 2014. It was supposed to happen in 2017. You know, we've moved a bit further in that direction in 2020. I know there is this phrase, I'm not quite sure what it means, permanent revolution, but, you know, in the context of USS, we've got permanent valuation. And I would be very, very surprised if closing altogether was not on the agenda, well, I guess it'll be in 18 months' time, by the autumn of 2023. And it's worth saying that the cost of new pension promises has gone up in the last three years, and the sort of figures that you quote are, are understated. You know, okay. as, interest rates, as interest rates have gone down, the other side of that coin is cost of pension provision goes up. So even if you had reached an equilibrium you know, as of 2017 or 2020, 2020, it doesn't apply in 2022. The other thing that I just wanted to mention, I'm sorry, slightly going off piece here. I was just flicking through, there's a list of the members, the non-university members of USS, and they rather unhelpfully stopped printing it in the annual report a few years ago. So this goes back a few years. But anyway, one of the first ones under B is B for Bristol, and it's B for Bristol Zoo Garden. So I did think about you, Tom. <laughs> We've also got C for cancer research as an example, or lots of other examples. You flip all the way down to U, and U is for UCU. So no. the UC, UCU officials are members of USS. So oh, that's interesting. I don't draw any particular conclusions from that. But it's just a, it's just an observation. It's just well, an I guess their members, their members would be reassured to hear that their officials fighting on their behalf have got some skin in the game. Yeah. Absolutely, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. So, so no, no, but, but uh, just one other point I wanted to pick up on that, and I'm really interested in the com- comment you just made about look, it's going to close. So there was a lot of discussion around the employer covenant, and one proposal, and I'm not sure if it's actually been adopted is that one way to help protect the scheme and not increase the contributions would be if there was a commitment that no more employers would leave the scheme. 
that the employers are effectively willing to just sign away their right to leave and to lock themselves into the scheme. And I, I don't know, has that happened? Well, it's a good question. If it hasn't happened, that is certainly the intention. Trinity College left a couple of years mm. ago. They wrote, wrote their Section 75 cheque of £30 million. I'd like to be able to claim some credit for that and to say, ah, oh, yes, I was the Machiavelli behind the scenes, but, but I wasn't. They did it entirely off their own bats. And so what from they, the founders, do you think, you think that was a smart move? Yeah, and what they said at the time, it's quite interesting. It's a very, very well, very carefully written piece, and, you know, I, I, all credit to them. They left. That created a bit of a hoo-ha. I'm not quite sure why it created a bit of a hoo-ha. Let's break it down, as always, into two separate things. The first is, what's the cost of new pension promises? The cost of new pension promises has nothing to do with the creditworthiness of the of the sponsors. Yeah, it is what it is. It's double A corporate bonds on a you know on a secured basis. And that's why, incidentally, the theory is you can have a triple A employer and a double B employer, and the cost of pension provision is the same because both of them have to provide an equivalent level of security. So in other words, you wouldn't lend to this double B company because it's double B, but you might lend to them on a secured basis. And you as a pension scheme member feel comfortable about taking a promise from them because you know you've got a bunch of assets that you can get hold of. So, you know, the quality of credit covenant makes no difference to the cost of new pension provision. The quality of the sponsor doesn't make any difference to the underlying value of liabilities. And indeed, there is an argument which says if you have a AAA employer, then the, co- the, you know, the cost is higher and the value of liabilities is higher. It doesn't reduce the value of liabilities, it increases the value of liabilities. Where the quality of the sponsor comes in, and it does come in, is to say, okay, you have two companies, let's make life easy, they're both close to, uh, to, to existing members, both of them have a deficit of a you know, a billion pounds, let's say, and you're doing it on exactly the same basis, you should feel more comfortable about allowing the stronger covenant to have a longer recovery period than the weaker weaker employer. And and the the last pension regulator figures I saw were were that the average recovery period was seven years, which is actually rather shorter than than I expected. So the only way in which the quality of the covenant makes any difference at all, it's not in cost of new pension promises. It's not in, well, okay, what's the value of the liabilities? It's over how many years would we be comfortable, do we think it's sensible, you know, to allow them to pay off the deficit? And here I have to say there's a bit of a paradox that if you are a very strong company, you might be able to say, all right, well, let's pay it off over... 20 years, you know, mm. that's outside the, the, the regulator's guidelines. Normally, sort of cap out about 10 years, right? Yeah, but at the same time, you say, well, actually, because we are a strong company, let's simply go out and borrow and put that money into the pension scheme. Let's not faff around. Because we can do yeah. it, exactly. Yeah. Let's not, let's not faff around. So this point about, you know, locking universities in, I've talked about smoke screens. Well, that's just a complete and utter red herring. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever, no difference whatsoever. But the trouble with USS is people have gone down these umpteen different rabbit holes and are very excited about whether 
There is incidentally, you know, an argument about whether you can ever leave a multi-employer pension scheme, you know, whether whether the law would mean that the scheme can at some point in the future come and knock on your door. Well, I mean, the truth is that's not being test, properly tested for USS. And obviously depends on their the, the particular details of their of their trust deed. So so all of that is in the uh, you know, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you know, it's a combination of a of a smokescreen, a red a red herring and a rabbit hole, whatever whatever you think, whatever you <laughs> that's think. That's a finely crafted metaphor. <laughs> exactly. So so that's got nothing, you know, nothing to do, nothing to do with anything. It doesn't take you any further forward. It just means that you're wasting, a, you know, you're wasting a lot of a lot of time and effort and energy. Okay, so look, I just want to sort of bring this to a conclusion. So I think your point that you made earlier on, I just want to come back to. Your opinion is, at some point in the next few years, scheme closure to future accrual is is it fair to use the word inevitable? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, and, okay. So then, it, my, my, my follow-on question from that is, you know, we've had strikes again already this year. What happens next? What's the immediate timeline look like? Well, as far as pensions as pensions are concerned, a new deal starts as of April the 1st. That is a done deal. The, the, the DB is capped, as you say, it's at a lower level. And the DB accrual is slightly lower. To be honest, not very much lower. But it is a bit lower, in, in fairness. And then nothing very much happens until March 31st next year when it's... You know, heaven forfend, it's the next actuarial valuation. I, I'm looking very carefully for when they publish their accounts in June or July. US has published their accounts and we'll be able to see what the March 2020 IS-19, you know, FRS-102 uh, position is. But the idea that strikes, however many, however many people have a few people, are going to make any difference... I think that's just for cloud cuckoo land, and I don't want to be—I don't want to be rude to anybody, but it's a bit like the Japanese uh, soldiers being found in 1953 on the Pacific island, not realizing that the that the war was over. I'm sorry, you know, the war is over, and at least for the time for the time being, you've you've lost. The, the only other thing that it is worth mentioning, and I don't pretend to be an expert on it, is that there is a legal case which is uh, going to be heard. And, you know, fantastic for lawyers, ka-ching, ka-ching. The four grounds on which they have been given leave to have a, to go to court, look to me, and I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not an actuary, by the way, Tom, I m- m- must make that absolutely clear. I got told off a long time ago by the Institute of Actuaries because they said I was referred to as an actuary and I didn't tell them I wasn't. They are, you know, they're very... Okay, guard thank this, you for that. Okay. Guard, this, guard this very jealously. So I'll be very interested to see what happens there. I mean, it may take a long time for that case to be heard. And I think the outcome will be, well, actually, I'm sorry, under each of these four headings, if you look at the rules of USS, USS didn't break any rules. And not just didn't break any rules in a technical sense, but, you know, just didn't break any rules. And the idea that a an employer can't change the terms of its employment, however much employees might not like it, and start offering a, a less generous pension scheme. I mean, that's got to be for the birds. The idea that you can't do that in law. The, the only thing that there might be, there might be, for all I know, some third order technical thing 
which said, well, actually, USS should have given, you know, 90 days notice Consultation for something, yeah. Yeah. and they only gave 80 days notice, so they've got to go through. I think that's highly, highly unlikely. USS have a very large legal bill, pay a very large legal bill every year, and they pay that to make sure that, rightly or wrongly, they're not breaking the law. So I think that's very unlikely. But nevertheless, this legal case is something that, you know, something that's there, that's there, and I wouldn't want to forget about it. OK, thank you for flagging that. And absent that, I'm setting the tables, we've got... So, so back to your point, the valuation comes out, and so the accounts come out in June, did you say? It's June, it's June or July, yeah. OK, all right, so to be continued. John, thank you so much for walking me through all of that. It's been absolutely fascinating and and very illuminating. I really appreciate it. Okay, good. Thanks. My pleasure, Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.